Old School Lane Casual Chats is brought to you by OldSchoolLane.blogspot.com and is associated with Channel Frederator, Manic Expression, The Comic Book Cast, and The Araminta Show. Everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of Casual Chats. I am Patricia, and I am here with a few special guests. We have Jim Bevan. Welcome back, Jim. Always glad to be here, Patty. Uh, we have Kyle. Welcome back, Kyle. Yo. And we have Ryan. Welcome back, Ryan. Thanks. Uh, so today we're going to be discussing about our memories with the uh, Sony PlayStation Two. Um, at the time of this recording, it has celebrated its 15th anniversary from the release on North America. So uh, let's discuss about how we first got a hold of it, or how we first heard of it. Jim, how did you hear about the PlayStation 2, or how did you hear about it? Well, I'd, uh, I'd, known, well, I'd known about it since it, uh, since early 2001. It was one of those, uh, you know, it was one of those systems. My parents were planning to get me and my brother for Christmas. It was either uh, the PlayStation 2 or the GameCube. At the time, the GameCube seemed to have the more appealing titles, but um, so we got that for Christmas. But then summer 2002... I saw some good stuff coming out for the PS2, mostly this first Sly Cooper game, and I was really interested in getting that, so I, uh, um, I wanted to actually have it be my own system, so that summer I got my first job and used some of the money to get the PS2 and Sly Cooper, and Sly Cooper, Devious Raccoonus. All right. Uh, how about you, Kyle? Um, well, for the longest time, all we owned was the Sega Genesis, and, um... Like, we never bought any next-gen consoles or anything. But, you know, like, finally we decided to get a PlayStation for Christmas. Yeah. We owned multiple ones because, though you know, those first ones were kind of broken. You know, you'd probably put something, play a game on them and say couldn't read them. So we went, like, went like with, uh, we got a small one after the big one because the big one was a piece of shit. And the small, the small ones are actually surprisingly durable. I have to, ours got dropped twice, and over the over the fourteen years we've had it, and it still it still runs very well. Uh, that was fun. Yeah, we sold ours eventually. And uh, what were the first games that you were able to get for the the, P- the PlayStation Two? Virtual Fighter. Oh, okay. The shit out of that. Got Splinter Cell, Pandora Tomorrow, and Chaos Theory. You know, those are always fun. We always like the stealth games. Uh, yeah. yeah. Alright, Ryan, uh, how about you? Let's see, I got my PlayStation 2 in January 2001 as a gift from my mother's boyfriend. But uh, it's not really that much of a story, really. Um, how did you first hear about it? I, frankly, I, I wouldn't know when I first heard about it. All right, and uh, what were the games? Uh, what were the first games that you owned? SSX. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's it, actually. SSX. All right. Yeah. Um, as for me, I got mine a little bit later. I received mine in, I believe it was two thousand three. I got it as a gift uh, from my dad around Christmas time, and it came with a bundle containing both. The original Jack and Daxter, the Precursor Legacy, and the original Ratchet and Clank. And uh, how we first heard about it, um, it was when I moved from New York City to Florida around 2001. 
and my cousin was still owning the original PlayStation, but he used to watch the commercials for the PlayStation 2, and he was really excited about getting a hold of one. And he got, you know, he got a copy of the PlayStation 2 first, and so uh, some of the first games that he was able to obtain was, um, mm, let's see, I think it was like either one of the uh, the Tekken games, I'm not sure which one was like new at the time, probably maybe Tekken 3 or 4. That was four. Okay, four. And then, uh, let's see. Uh, I believe also another one that he probably also got was maybe Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. Oh, Jesus. That was one of the yeah. first games my brother got. Yeah, mine too. I I did not I did not get that game. I mean, I know, uh, I know what uh-huh. Kojima was going for, but it just came off as way too convoluted yeah, and pretentious. It's fucking weird. The third one has a way more comprehensible story. Oh, yeah. As Pro Jared said, the third one is the best one. Yeah, that's, that's actually my favorite. It's the first one I played, actually. I didn't play two, I just watched my brother play it. And uh, three is really fun. Well, I guess while we're on the topic, I guess we could discuss about some of our favorite franchises. And since you guys did bring up about the Metal Gear Solid series... Um, my cousin's been playing the Solid series ever since the be- uh, the first one. Uh, obviously, you know, playing the games on the MSX2 was practically impossible for us Americans. So, just like most people, we played it on the original PlayStation. Yeah. And who really remembers the uh, the uh, NES titles, really? <laughs> yes, exactly. Unless, unless you're James Rolfe. Yeah, that's true. Unless you're James Rolfe, or unless you're... Um, uh, trailer Drake, in which he actually says in his unpopular opinion on the Metal Gear series, in which he actually wants to see uh, revivals or remakes of them. Anyway, but uh, continuing on, so yeah, um, Metal Gear Solid 2, I can understand why a lot of people hate it. I mean, when you consider that the original Metal Gear Solid was such a influential game that came out during a time in which we had just slowly got out of the whole Doom clone era of the 90s and getting into a little bit more sophistication with storytelling and stealth. It was something yeah. unheard of. And then, you know, yeah. the, the the game was hyped up to no end. I remember my cousin, he would, like, read about it in Game Informer or he would read it in various websites like GameSpot and IGN, and they were, like, hyping the game to no end, and then eventually it came out, and pretty much people just didn't like the character of Raiden until at least Metal Gear Solid 4. See, I didn't mind Raiden. I actually thought he was okay. I just thought the problem was just every... I mean, dear God, I don't even... I don't want to discuss everything that is so incomprehensible that doesn't make sense about Metal Gear Solid's plot, or we could be recording this for all day. Yeah, I mean, maybe someday down the line we'll do... We need to do a Metal Gear podcast, but we will not do that. We'll save that for another day. I mean, all the stuff with the Patriots and the conspiracies and... Yeah, it gets a little bit complicated after a while. But yeah, uh, for the sake of uh, focusing that this is a PlayStation 2 Memories podcast, I guess we'll focus on 2 and 3. Number 3. What's there to say about number 3? It was fun. You sneak through the jungle. You slit people's throats and you shoot them in the ass. The tranquilizer dart. Obviously, variety too, because you don't have to kill. I mean, not no, necessarily. You, it actually penalizes you later in the game, depending yes, on how many people you killed. Yeah, that's I think what really sticks out because Middle Gear Solid Three it just had so many memorable moments that played with your expectations and it also played with how the game goes. I mean. Who didn't try, you know, resetting the the PS2's internal clock to see what happens if the end dies of old age? Yes, and and not to mention about when you're fighting against the sorrow of all the people that you've killed throughout the game, they all come back to appear as ghosts. And then uh, then also finding out about, um, you know, boss, uh, the boss, you know, being kind of like um, following this whole double-crossing plot involving with, um, you know, she's in the bad guy side, but then she turns out to be, like, a double agent and all that stuff. and Cold War politics and all that. Yeah, it's actually a good, it's a good character, because it shows both Boss and Big Boss as they both get swallowed up by this machine and basically turn from, you know, 
noble soldiers into you know people who are forced to do atrocities for the sake of you know for the sake of world or peace or their own yeah yeah and then everything pretty much gets corrupted ever since with you know big boss having to murder the boss at the end and leading up to various other uh, games in the series in which he switches sides and everything that he tries to do for the sake of peace and following what the boss was trying to do but then it ends up kind of like following in the same path that the um of of everything that he was trying to fight against yeah it's it's just so compelling and it almost makes you forget how silly it is you fight a guy who can control bees Bees. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, yes. Horn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know they're uh, hornets. And um, and it, that is really another thing because I know Kojima likes to you know play with tropes and conventions and he likes to break the fourth wall, but I think he, this was the game that showed he can dial back the silliness and actually deliver a truly intriguing story. Which is kind of funny because. You have you seen the recent reviews on um you know I'm sorry going on a tangent again but the recent reviews on Metal Gear Solid 5 they were complaining about that the game was too serious Really? Because I see people talking more about what songs it's more amusing to play when you're attaching the Fulton balloons to things and flying them off Ah well, it's, well, the craziness is there it's just like it's just not as concentrated because they, they space out the cutscenes more. Oh, that's something I really miss from Metal Gear. Cutscenes that don't take an hour to complete. Uh, Metal Gear Solid 4 is pretty much like a movie to the, when it comes to its cutscenes. Uh, they're all very cinematic. That is true. Anyway, so um, any other particular um, franchises or games that really resonate you with the PlayStation 2? Um, Splinter Cell. Oh, okay. Another Cell. I haven't played a lot of the Splinter Cell games. I've maybe played like one or two because ever since Metal Gear Solid, my cousin really got into the stealth genre. And so he played a handful of the Splinter Cell games. And, you know, there's always been like this big debate on which was the better uh, stealth soldier, Solid Snake or Sam Fisher. So um, go ahead, uh, uh, Kyle. They're really two type, different types of games. Uh, Splinter Cell is set in the real world. You know, it's, it's not as silly, I guess. Well, true. It's very, uh, you know, gritty, I guess. Makes sense. No, you, um, if it, for your answer, who's the best, who's the best stealth soldier? J.C. Denton. <laughs> oh, okay. And, and that's a good answer. I couldn't resist. All right, so, uh, Kyle, uh, which games in the Splinter Cell series for the PlayStation 2 have you played? Um, Pandora Tomorrow and, um, Chaos Theory. And... Yeah, I think Chaos Theory was the better of the two. Why? The first one, so... Uh, why is that? Uh, why do you think that Pandora's, um... What was it? Uh, Chaos Theory. Oh, Chaos Pandora Theory. Tomorrow. Okay, so, um... What made them so... Uh, what made them, you know, some of the best in the series? Hmm. Well, I can only speak for myself, but, you know, I just enjoy, like, sneaking around. You know, figuring stuff out. Figuring out creative ways to kill people. Or not kill people, I guess. You know, it makes you think. You know, you can't just go in guns a-blazing. That's what's always intriguing about those games for me. Okay, that's good. Um, I really don't have too much to say about the Splinter Cell games, so um, let's move on to another one. Um, Jim, what would you say would be a, a franchise or a game that you have um, fond memories of? Uh, Persona 3 and 4. Oh! Yes. You know, I have never played any of the Persona games, but I know that uh, the three people that I do know from Manic Expression who do play the Persona games are uh, obviously the both of you and uh, Hero of Tomorrow, who unfortunately is not here with us today. But um, go ahead. Uh, I want to hear your stories about Persona 3 and 4. So um, go ahead, Jim. Why don't you start off? Okay. Well, it's really, it's, it's kind of hard to say what makes... It's kind of hard to encapsulate what makes Persona 3, uh, Persona 3 and 4 such good games. It's probably because they actually do go into... I guess they take what you might consider to be a normal slice-of-life anime, mix it up with some supernatural elements, and they just deliver really compelling stories. Because you, you, play a, you have a silent protagonist in both games, mostly silent, but they're just surrounded by such... They're surrounded by such fascinating characters that really help build up a world that you get to know and help in their life. I mean, I say Persona 4 probably has the more memorable characters. You have, uh, you know, you have Chie and how she's the, you know, how she's a typical tomboy, but she's hiding some of her own insecurities. You have Kanji, who puts himself off to be like this macho badass bully because he's 
grappling with his own concerns about his gender and his sexuality. You have Rise, the teen idol who's gotten so who's tired of fame, feels it's like overwhelming her. And oh, the way I, I believe, from what I understand, and uh, I apologize for any Persona fans who might be listening to this and are probably cringing, but I believe that depending on your decision, the story uh, takes uh, different paths depending on what decision you make. Oh yeah, there are yeah, there's a there's a bad ending, there's a neutral ending, and there's a good ending that can occur. And in and in Persona Four, it comes after one of the most heartbreaking moments. I don't want to spoil it, but let's just say if you get invested in the characters and you see what happens to one of them, it will make you it could make you angry enough to risk making a bad decision if you don't think clearly and I think that's a testament to how well it does when you really care for these fictional characters uh, Do you have any uh, stories uh, regarding about you know your experience in playing the games? Nothing I can really think of, well I just remember if there's one thing I do have to kind of penalize Persona for, the Persona games for they can become very lengthy in terms of their dungeon crawling and they have the very nasty aspect of the whole party dies if the team leader dies hmm. which, can, which can make it very annoying especially if you've got to save but I remember it was one of those games that really drives you to do what you can to get through the to get through the dungeons as quick as possible just so you can get back to see what's going to happen through the story. It's one of those games that doesn't like be over the head with themes or philosophies, but it mentions them and uh, inspires you to look up information on themselves. Like Persona 3, there's a recurring theme of shadows, and they mention um, Jungian psychology, so if you don't know much about that, you look into Jung and you look into the concepts of the tarot, and you see how that can apply to uh, characters like Junpei and Akihito. All right, that sounds interesting. Uh, Ryan, tell me about your experiences with Persona 3 and 4. Let's see, I played Persona 4 first uh, when I got it in December 2008. That was extensive. That game was an extensive part of 2009 for me, and I really loved it. All right, um, any uh, particular moments that you remember from the game? Well, there's a, there's a couple I can't spoil for reasons, and... Uh, mm -hmm. uh, what about something that doesn't have like too much of an impact on the overall plot? Or some of your favorite characters? What about the culture festival at the school? Do you remember that and how, how amusing that was? Uh, yeah. I don't know about that. Uh, tell me about it. Um, there's a culture festival at the school, and the male characters uh, managed to sign up all the, all the female characters for a, for a beauty pageant. And then later on, the girls get their revenge by signing up the guys for a drag show. <laughs> That's amazing. That is amazing. That is awesome. It's it's a, it's a, it's one of the best episodes of the anime too. Now, um, again, as somebody who does not know anything about the Persona games, are these like in in the case of Final Fantasy, in which you can play either of the games and they're standalone stories, or it's better for you to play one through um, the newest game? Uh, they're standalone. Okay, yeah. fair enough. There is a there is a bit of an intercontinuity crossover though, because in Persona Four, there's a there's a cutscene where the characters actually go to the city where Persona Three was set. Okay. So that's, that, seems, that seems fair, because for the most part, when it comes to uh, traditional RPGs, uh, they usually do have standalone titles, and every once in a while they do cross over in various locations from the previous game. So it makes sense. Mm -hmm. But you can play them in any order, though. If you're looking for, like, to follow, to chart the whole series, you definitely want to start with the Persona 1 and 2 remakes that were out on the PSP, because the stories are okay, but the mechanics were are pretty dated, not as good as they were in the PS2 ones. Since the first two games that I was able to receive at the PlayStation 2 were Jack and Daxter and Ratchet and Clank, I guess I can briefly talk about both of them. I do want to do a Ratchet and Clank casual chat in honor of the upcoming movie, so I'm not going to say too much into it. And as for the Jack and Daxter series, we already did an entire Naughty Dog podcast uh, in honor of its 30th anniversary a few months ago. I never played any games on the Nintendo 64 until many years later. When I started getting my Nintendo Wii and I had the virtual console, and then I had a few friends who owned like uh, the Xbox 360 and they were able to download some of the Banjo-Kazooie Banjo games. So, for the most part, I didn't play, you know, Super Mario 64, I didn't play the Banjo-Kazooie games or Conker's Bad Fur Day when they came out. 
I was one of those kids in which I had the Super Nintendo and then I moved over to the PlayStation. I mean, sure, you know, Spyro would probably be an example of, like, collectible, um, you know, collectathons and, you know, finding the jewels and stuff like that, but Jack and Daxter The Precursor Legacy was, like, my major experience into um, that kind of uh, gameplay style in which you go around into uh, an overarching world with no load times and explore around and collecting the precursor orbs that way you can get the power cell so you can move over to the next po um to the next land and um it's it's very funny because i had a debate on whether i uh, when i first got them i you know it's like Ratchet and Clank is a lot more linear when this with its gameplay and Jack and Daxter was more open uh, open world and I really like both of them for different reasons. I would play both of them on the spot. I remember this one time in which, when I was playing uh, one of the early stages of Ratchet and Clank, and um, for some reason, there, there's like, um, if you go to the second or third world, there's usually like a little bit of quicksand that you land on and then you sink down and then you lose a life. Um... There was one time in which I went... I, I don't know if this has ever happened to anybody who's ever played it, but there was a glitch in which Ratchet didn't sink. He just stood there, and he was, he looked like he was sinking, but he just stood there for, like, a good three minutes right before I eventually just restarted the game. And for my cousin, uh, my younger cousin, this was, like, one of his early experiences with... Um, with video games. Uh, he would always come over to my house, and I had the the PlayStation 2 set up with the original Ratchet and & Clank, and he would always be excited to play the game. Also, when I got the uh, second copy uh, and the third copy of Ratchet & Clank to complete my collection, I remember the third one specifically because it had the code in which if you enter in a code, you can actually play a demo of Spyro... Uh, not Spyro... Uh, Sly Cooper 2 and... I was able to experience that for the first time. I didn't play the first one because, to be quite honest, I didn't really hear a lot of people talking about it until Sly Cooper 2, in which it had gotten unanimous praise. So yeah. I was able to hear about Sly Cooper 2 through the demo that you have to put in a code in for Ratchet & Clank Up Your Arsenal. And I have to say, Ratchet & Clank Up Your Arsenal is hilarious as hell. There are so many hilarious moments in that. First of all, I, I just need to know, have any of you guys ever played any of the Ratchet & Clank games? Uh, mm. I played some of the first I did, one. but I, my brother did. Mm. I played the first two. Alright. Well, I'm sure you can say this, uh, Jim, that the first game, it had a very forgettable villain. There's not really much to say about Chairman Drek. He would have fit in on Captain Planet, probably. Yeah, the only thing that is memorable about him is that he was voiced by Kevin Michael Richardson. But other than that, there's not really much to his character other than he takes apart different planets and puts it to his own new planet so that his uh, species can be able to live in uh, peace and without pollution. And in the first Ratchet & Clank, Ratchet was a bit of a jerk, to Clank especially. There's um, a traitor amongst uh, the group that uh, Ratchet and Clank got a little um, betrayed at the end, and Ratchet starts acting like a jerk with uh, to Clank throughout a good chunk of the game, and Ratchet becomes pretty much unlikable. I found that to be problematic, too. I mean, I found that he was... I mean, I can understand the guy had a harsh life, but he was way too abrasive, I felt. Yeah, I mean, it could be understandable for Ratchet because... He lived on a backwater planet of Velden. He was a mechanic who didn't really get a lot of customers or money. And then when he, I mean, his whole dream was to, um, you know, leave the planet and explore the galaxy. And then we have Clank who comes along and, you know, Clank is like one of his few chances of him exploring and finding out what's going on with uh, Chairman Drek and finding out about you know, Captain Quark, because Clank's mission was to find Captain Quark to deliver a message about Sherman Drek. Some of the memorable things about the game was, of course, you know, with Captain Quark, you know, being ridiculous and silly. All he was missing was a, all he was missing was a Patrick Warburton to voice him. <laughs> well, Jim Ward did a pretty decent job with voicing uh, Captain Quark throughout the remainder of the series, and I'm glad that he's going to come back in the movie. And also the weapons. I, I can understand that their um, slogan for the original Ratchet & Clank was to blow shit up. And 
um, yeah, the, the, it was crazy when I first played the game. Like, these weapons were over the top and they were incredible. But playing the more recent games and looking back on the original weapons, they seem kind of bland. I mean, you have your stereotypical shooter, you have your stereotypical bomb glove, you have your stereotypical rocket launcher. The only ones that were, like, really memorable for me was the, um, the weapon that turned enemies into sheep. Uh, then there was the uh, rocket. Con there was the remote controlled uh, rocket launcher. Wasn't there a magnet gun to like draw in uh, metal objects from a distance? Um, no, I think I think you're confusing it with like um, uh, the suck cannon. Oh, the suck cannon. Yeah, the suck cannon. Uh, for smaller enemies, you can suck them in, and then you can use the enemies as projectiles. Uh, yeah, that was also a really memorable um, weapon that you only saw. In, like, the first three Ratchet & Clank games, if you were able to transfer them via memory card. For the most part, um, you know, you have some, like, really decent levels. Like, obviously, the Metropolis level is one of the most uh, iconic in the entire series. I mean, it's even played out later on in uh, Ratchet & Clank Future Tools of Destruction. Yeah, I mean, there's not really much to say about the first one. The second one is definitely a much better improved game over the first because it introduced the RPG elements and it had a lot more um, worlds for you to explore and... Um, and this was also the first game in the series in which you get to upgrade your weapons. And then there's, there's the plot twist, which, you know, showcases on who the actual villain is. And to be quite honest, it was kind of a letdown for me, because I expected something a little bit more. Play Going Commando, and then you play Tools of Destruction for the PlayStation 3, there's a little bit of continuity errors that even the developers themselves don't even want to acknowledge. It's kind of interesting, to be quite honest. Uh, it, it makes sense, of course, because... The Future series was the first time in the Ratchet and Clank series in which they try to tell an overarching story. So I guess it made kind of sense. You think they would have had something in there to, like, you know, offer a bit of a retcon or some explanation? True. Would have been nice if maybe there would have been a logical explanation as to um, the person who was called, you know, who was kind of, like, showcased as the villain in the second game. And who, when they reveal who the person is, then it it just builds up a lot of questions. When especially if you play Tools of Destruction, but anyway, um, going. But I have to say that the ending with uh, you know at the end credits in which you see Captain Quark uh, trying off these like odd items, trying to you know after he was like humiliated. It's kind of weird, especially the whole um, hygienator, which I have no idea what they were thinking when doing that. I mean, let's be honest, the Ratchet and Clank series is very well known for putting in a lot of sexual innuendos. But I guess that was the joke. And then I have to say that Up Your Arsenal at the time was my favorite Ratchet and Clank game because it was so funny. Dr. Nefarious is still to this day my favorite Ratchet and Clank villain. Uh, it's hard to, it's understandable why. It's just so, it's just so freaking memorable. He is hilarious, and it, it, uh, there are so many things about him that just makes him stand out um, compared to the previous two villains, because, I mean, you, ha you have the scene in which, uh, you know, Nefarious, when, um, well, I, I, again, I don't want to spoil for those who haven't played the game, but uh, for those who don't know, Nefarious is like this robot, and then every time he gets angry at Captain Quark because he wants to get revenge on Captain Quark, <laughs> there's this soap opera that plays in his brain, and it has to be slapped by his uh, butler, Lawrence, for him to get back to normal. Yeah. He also got to love how Lawrence, even though he was badly mistreated, always managed to get, like, he managed to get back at Nefarious in a way, like, the bit where, uh, where there's self-destruct, where they have to, where he activates a self-destruct mechanism to kill Ratchet and his friends, and he said, he asked Lawrence to teleport them away. Lawrence chooses to teleport himself instead, and Dr. Nefarious is just standing there as the, as the countdown goes on until he says, this isn't funny, Lawrence! And then he's teleported away. Right. And, and then eventually when Nefarious and Lawrence are at the, um, the meteor, or, or no, asteroid, and then you have Lawrence dressed up as a rock star, and then he's asking about, you know, how long are we going to be stuck in this asteroid? And then he said, oh, well, so according to my calculations, we're going to probably be here for like, I don't know, like a few, you know, hundred yeah. thousand years or something. And so we might as well get ourselves comfortable because it's going to be a long ride. And then he just screams out his name, and then the end credits roll. Another, uh, his sidekick, 
Courtney Gears. I bet, like, back then, it was, like, a hilarious jab, but just looking at it now, I mean, it's, it's a pretty dated reference. That's like if you were to have a, um, a villain based off of, like, Kesha or Lady Gaga, but still, I mean, that music video oh. that plays is oh. so, it's oh. so great. They actually did have a villain based on Lady Gaga and Chroma Squad that came out earlier this year. I haven't played that game yet. It's, it's interesting. It's they kind of make it like a late. They kind of make a male version that's a cross between Lady Gaga and Rita Repulsa. <laughs> oh wow! Really? Uh, yep. Oh man! After ten thousand years, I'm free. Now it's time to take over planet Earth. While showcasing on the ways of how we deal our culture and represent our sexuality. Pretty much. All right, but still, um. Everything about Up Your Arsenal is great, and the story's great, the weapons are great, especially the way in which if you had the memory card and you had the first two games, then you can be able to combine all the weapons into one. It upgraded more, the levels were memorable, the weapons were the best in the series at the time. I mean, everything just pulled together so wonderfully. Do you remember that bit where uh, it looks like Captain, where they think Captain Quirk is dead, and uh, Ratchet tries to give him a eulogy? And he's just and he's just standing there struggling to think of something nice to say about Quark. Oh yes, it's pretty understandable why. Because when Quark and the gang get back together, they send Ratchet and Clank over to a dangerous mission, while everybody else just sits at um, the space station, saying about, "Oh, we'll just send him along." While the rest of us have meatloaf because it's meatloaf day. So it's like, yeah, you know, I can understand why you don't like Quark. Considering the fact that Quark has taken advantage of Ratchet and Clank in more ways than one. And, uh, you know, finding Quark in the first level when, um, you know, he disappears and then he ends up in the planet in which he thinks he's like the, um, a monkey or something, a monkey lord. Then trying to get his memory back together. And then, of course, um, one of the good things about Up Your Arsenal was that there was like a 2D side-scrolling Captain Quark game. Had anybody tried the um, the password that uh, if you put it in, you actually get to play as Captain Quark wearing a tutu? What? I'm not even joking. In fact, in the cutscene, Big Al, who runs the, um, the, in the first game, he runs, like, a, a weapons and gadgets shop. He even says what the code is, and I still remember it to its day. It's, um, up, up, down, down, left, right, circle, square, square. And if you put in the code, he actually does wear a tutu. And also, if you put the code in reverse, if you're playing as Ratchet, it's circle, square, circle, square, up, down, uh, no, it's down, down, up, uh, down, up, down, no, it's down, down, up, up, there we go. Uh, if you put in that, then Ratchet actually, um, has his Omni-Wrench transformed into a lightsaber. Because if, it, if it's sci-fi, you gotta have a lightsaber. Obviously, yes. Um, no, I just want to briefly talk about the fourth and final game in the PlayStation 2, which was Ratchet Deadlocked. Definitely more different than, you know, the previous games, because it's basically a gladiator-style game in which... Ratchet is mostly focusing on combat as opposed to combat mixed with puzzles, mixed with exploration. A lot of people, they have their mixed opinions on it, but I enjoyed it okay. It was a lot of fun, especially when you customize the weapons and you put in the different elements into it to make the experiences completely different. Like, if you put in one item, then you get to put in, like, maybe lightning. The, the enemies get struck with lightning or put in, like... Uh, maybe lava. It plays it, the weapons play off differently depending on what elements or how fast uh, the bullets go or how powerful the shots are. But the thing that disappointed me a little bit was that the villain was nothing really special. Gleam and Vox was kind of like your stereotypical like agent in trying to represent the, the you know the main gl um, gladiator who was supposed to be on the top. Think of it like a PG version of Mad World, except. Without the blood and without the cursing, and it's more—it's a lot more humorous. Uh, the news announcers are the ones that make it. Um, there's like these two news announcers who kind of like play off one another. They are the highlights of the entire game, in my opinion. Oh, that's good. Sounds good. Yeah, I find that when you have like good commentary, that can elevate even like a somewhat average fighting game or brawler. Yeah, definitely, I agree. Um, and if you want to hear more talks about, um, you know, how I feel about the Jack and Daxter games, well, there's the Naughty Dog podcast, so you can check it out. So, um, any other franchises that you guys want to talk about? 
I was going to say, if we are doing PS2, we could probably got to talk about the big one for that title, Shadow uh-huh. of the Colossus. Shadow of the Colossus. I know a lot of people have, like, personal issues with that game, but it is very interesting. The way that the atmosphere plays into um, wandering around and fighting off each and every single colossi, and finding out the different strategies, and also the the story involving with Wander trying to save his girlfriend. It's a perfect minimalist story. You know, one of the stories that does you don't need to pick up everything through dialogue. It's all through the characters' actions, and what their and their and the repercussions, and even the environment. Right, and not to mention about how it tells. Uh, a pretty strong allegory that doesn't really shove it into your face, and it can lead up to many interpretive ways on how you say how you think the story played out. And another way, again, we were talking about earlier how Kojima likes to subvert things. This is one of the ultimate subversions, one of the big things where you think you're playing as the hero, only to realize the further you go on that what you're doing is actually, you know, as monstrous as the creep as the creatures you've been being to fight. I mean, yes, you can justify it and rationalize it and say, I am doing this for a good reason. I am doing it to save the life of the person I love. But when you are killing innocent creatures that have never done anything to harm you, that are only atta- reacting in self-defense, you know, it doesn't matter how far you've traveled or how many times you've risked your life, does that really justify it? Right. And I guess it could be the same way in which you know, trying to see if you can control faith. Faith is, you know, for a lot of people, it's already predetermined. You know, sometimes people try to change it. But in a way, you know, the way that things are played out, sometimes we have no control over it, no matter how much we try. And the pre- yeah. and with the repercussions that it comes to changing it, it can be even more, you know, consequential in your life than what it was before. Yeah, and when you think about it, you know, it's never given as an option in the game, but you kind of have the feeling Wander could just abandon the point. He can realize that it's not worth it and go on, but he just can't fight his destiny. Right. Uh, do you guys have anything to say about Shadow of the Colossus? Have you guys played the game? We had it. I, I played it. Oh, okay. What are your opinions on it, Ryan? Uh, I actually don't have much to add on what Jim said. All right. Uh, Kyle? No, I, I never played it. Okay. I think we had it. But, um, oh, you don't know what you're missing. I, I believe yeah, that probably. controls weren't the best, but it was one of those games where, like, everything else compensates up for it. It looked interesting. It seemed pretty unique. It's a pretty unique game. I, I, there's going to be some people who are not going to get in, uh, intri- into it because gameplay-wise, it's a little bit hard to control, especially if you're writing Argo. Argo was... Yeah, difficult. Yeah, Argo was um, programmed on purpose to go out of control because... They want to showcase that, you know, hey, you know, just because, you know, this is a video game doesn't mean that we have to give the mechanics of a video game. It's going to control like a real horse, so you have to be able to try to see how you can be able to play it into the surroundings in order for you to accomplish your tasks. Which I know that can su- that can frustrate a lot of people, especially if they play games for just the gameplay and not for the story. But, you know, if you're into moody atmospheric games that have a deep message behind it then i would suggest you check it out and ico is no slouch either ico is also a really great game maybe not as well known as shadow of the colossus but still a pretty decent game in its own right oh yeah definitely and i won't say it did have control issues but it was still another one another good example of what team eco can do with just like you know building a great story through very little actual exposition letting you find out for yourself what's happening. Kyle, why don't you give your, uh, the next game or franchise that you have uh, fond memories over? Um, Bully. Bully? Oh, that yes. is actually Sorry. one of the most overlooked Rockstar's. games in the, yes, in the uh, Rockstar games. Rockstar for a yeah, long time was... fair, but uh, surprisingly good. Yeah, Bully was, for a while, Bully was like a really critically acclaimed game, but it was hugely overshadowed by the Grand Theft Auto series. So, uh, I want to hear your story on it. Hmm. Well, I only played it a little bit. But if I recall... I recall it being pretty tough, actually. Well, it makes it sense. Because... Like games, games used to be a little bit harder, right, back then? It seems like a little bit more easier now. It's weird, but... Uh... I guess it uh, depends, of course. I mean, you know, Bully is no Dark Souls or uh, Blood Rain, no, but... No. 
I can see that because, you know, similar to like most Rockstar games, you have, you know, an open world to explore. In this case, you have the school and you have to make various decisions on how you're able to pick on people or which people to pick on. It's kind of interesting because games were going for a much more older audience. They wanted to have an anti-hero that you can uh, play as. And it's pretty interesting about how this game was able to... Uh, showcase on playing as a bully as opposed to like in other games in which you would have played as maybe like a yeah. a nerd or you know the everyman yeah. or something yeah but even then you weren't like just the total dick you could choose to be uh, yeah you could choose you, you had be. to choose who you yeah you could be but you could also choose who you would help and who you would uh who you would and you know who you would be your enemy align yourself with yeah yeah and it kind of makes sense that the um that the original title that the original title that I went under in Europe was Canis Canum Edit, Dog Eat Dog. Interesting. I've never heard of that. I have heard some people uh, say it's like a good satire of the American schooling system, but I've never been to one of those private academies, so I can't really say. Yeah, well neither, neither, yeah, neither have I. I've never been to a private academy, so I wouldn't say it either. But I guess for somebody who is, um, you know, kind of like the everyman, like the bully, somebody who is... Uh, filled with emotion, somebody who's uh, just not fitting in the squeaky clean, uptight private academy surroundings, and I guess he needs to blow off his rage in some way, shape, or form without getting to the point in which he's a jerk. Yeah. Uh, Anti-hero, man. Yeah. Not, not in it to be a hero or a villain, just trying to survive in his own way. Exactly. Definitely a lot more better played than Shadow the Hedgehog. Yeah, Shadow the give the you get the you get the black hedgehog a gun. I'm surprised they didn't change the ring slices to fried chicken. <laughs> oh my god! I, yeah, for anyone who wants to send me hate mail, I didn't come up with that joke. That was the guy who draws BG cats. Wow. Uh, yeah, I got one. Okay. Um, Onimusha. Oh! Does remember Onimusha? Uh, my cousin is a huge Onimusha fan. Any games involving with uh, ninjas or samurai, he's a huge fan of. I haven't played uh, that game in a while, though. Yeah, I just remember having the third one. I didn't really play the first two. Well, um, do you have any... uh, anything you have to say about it? It was solid. It's a solid game. It's a solid game. Alright, fair enough. Well, I guess, uh, you know, if we're going to be talking about Capcom, I guess we can bring up the Devil May Cry games. Oh, yeah. Has, yeah. has anybody played any of the games? I played the first, I, I, you know, uh, my cousin yeah. likes the Devil May Cry games, and he's already played, like, pretty much all of them, with the exception of the remake. I played the first two, though. I always found it odd why Capcom chose to make the sequel to the first one and just name it Devil May Cry 3, as if they were implying there was some missing adventure that happened. Yeah, I, I don't know why, because I, I do know that Devil May Cry 2 was not liked by a lot of people because of the unbalanced difficulty, but still, um, I guess they're trying to not acknowledge it, but yeah, the first Devil May Cry was, you know, for for those who don't know, that was supposed to be Resident Evil 4, but because the gameplay was so completely different than any of the other Resident Evil games, it was reworked into a brand new genre, um, a brand new franchise of the Devil May Cry series. Yeah, it's a very interesting game. You know, we have Dante, and he's a demon slayer, and he's half, you know, demon, half a- angel from his mother and father's side. And, uh, you know, we have um, a lot of really uh, memorable, you know, uh, bosses, and you have the storyline in which it plays off, and seeing his brother Virgil, and... You know, all the, um, the story itself is way too complicated to discuss in, like, 10 to 20 minutes, but, um, and and plus, I'm not the biggest aficionado of the Devil May Cry games, my cousin is, and he can tell you that his favorite in the franchise, um, well, besides, you know, the fourth one for the PS3 and the Xbox 360... It was the the third one, in which it had the most conclusive story out of all of them, especially that fight against Virgil. Yeah, I, I don't really have anything much to say about it. How about you guys? Uh, not, not really. It's been a bit too long since I last played it. Yeah. Okay, I got one. You know, what many people consider to be, like, the flagship series in the entirety of the PlayStation 2. Alright, let's hear it. God of War. Hmm. I gotta be honest, that's another game I never played. I got, yeah, I kind of... 
I kind of thought God of War was, I thought the first one was very good. I thought it was, you know, a very good tale of just looking at Kratos' descent into madness and looking at what barbarism brought. And then they just had to ruin it all with the second sequel when they make it, with the sequel when they make him this, like, petulant child. You know, a lot of people have debated on which one is the best out of the series, and I would say story-wise, the first game is the best. Gameplay-wise, the second game is the best. I said I can't argue with that. Third game, I don't know what to call it, to be quite honest. I mean, gameplay-wise, it's a lot of fun, but the ending is a huge slap in the face. But anyway, we'll, we'll be focusing on the first two because God of War 3 came out on the, P the PS3. But yeah, um, I was always huge into Greek mythology as a kid, and we even studied it in, when I was in middle school. So having to see, um, you know, kind of like their twist into Greek lore with Kratos being like the Spartan soldier and trying to rid of his nightmares uh, that he's been constantly having of his family dying and... Uh, you know, trying to uh, see if he can get forgiveness from the gods, and going into um, you know, and going into the temple of Kronos, uh, and you know, fighting off against Ares who attacks Athens. I have to say that everything about it was like really interesting. Like you, sh you know, it showcases on the different mytho mytho <clears throat> mythological creatures. Sorry, <clears throat> it helped popularize Pest X to not die. Yes. I mean, if Shenmue brought in the, you know, the was was one of the first games that brought in the quick time events, God of War pretty much brought it to an overwhelming level. It's like, you know, push buttons in order for you to complete a task. Push X so you don't die. Push R and 1 button so you can stab somebody in the eye. Hit circles to gouge out the Cyclops' eye and then hold it up like you like your like your link. Yeah. Push R2 so you can push a cage so a guy can burn and use it as a sacrifice to open a gate. Oh, God. That was just, that was just sadistic. Yeah, true. Yeah. That's kind of the sad thing, though. How many times Kratos had to solve, like, a puzzle or get by an obstacle by just killing someone. Yes. And, and, and you know, in the first game alone, he killed a lot of people in order for him to complete puzzles. And that's one of the good things about the first game is that, you know, it had some pretty interesting puzzles. Like, uh, when you get the swimming mechanic for the first time and you can be able to breathe underwater. Uh, I didn't know the first time that you had to go all the way under, um, you know, Poseidon's statue in order for you to, uh, you know, go on to the next level. And th that level was just sadistic because it had these, like, really creepy hands, and then it had those chain blades in the bottom that if you didn't swim fast enough, you would be sliced up and you'd be dead. But one of the most memorable th uh, things about the game was when when you finally ha get Pandora's box, and then Ares comes by, and he throws the um, he, he throws the wooden stake, and then it pierces into Kratos' heart, and he dies, and lands over in Hades, I mean, just Hades itself and seeing the bodies just falling down was just creepy to look at. Yeah, it had, some, it had quite a few nightmare fuel moments. Yeah, I'll say. But, um, yeah, I would say that, you know, with story-wise, it, it was a really interesting game. It was actually one of the very few games that my sister, who's not a gamer, was, like, saying, I want to know what happens next. Keep playing. I want to know what happens next. I, I, I got to find out what, what, what's going on. I, but, yeah, it was just great. And uh, unlocking the additional cutscenes was not an easy task, especially when finding out you know, more information about Kratos' past, which, unfortunately, they pretty much retconned in the sequel. Yeah. And and the funny thing about it is, is that if you played through the second game and you see a video on that, they just pretty much said, eh, we just don't care. It's like, screw you, man. People do actually give a crap about continuity. They took someone who was, you know, um, basically someone who done monstrous actions, but... You could understand the rationale, and they just made him into this, you know, and they made him into a generic tough guy who wants to kill because it's fun. I mean, I can understand because he was trying to get revenge on what Zeus did, but still, I mean, there was no reason for him to attack the village other than trying to help out the Spartans. Even with Ares being the god of war, he helped with war just so he can be able to perform actions that were rightfully so, not because he just wanted to showcase his power. 
Yeah. And then you come into the big problem that started in God of War 2 and extended into 3, where he, where Kratos is killing off the Greek pantheon and so, all, and so many other deities that form basic functions. Like, he kills Helios. He kills the Sisters of Fate. How is the world still functioning when he is destroying the deities that basically guarantee the basic functions of the world work? Yeah, and it becomes even more complicated with God of War 3. But we will not be discussing it here because that was a PS3 game, but man, does it get screwed over. And unfortunately, we never get a clear-cut answer because the following games afterwards are prequels. Yeah, yeah I, I still remember, I still love the comment that uh, Yahtzee made once in the Zero Punctuation view where he said that God of War 3 turned Kratos into history's most militant atheist. Wow, that's that's actually a really interesting point that he made, and it's kind of rightfully so. But um, yeah, one of the, my favorite you know powers of um, you know with God of War one and two was you know when you got things like um, you know you have things such as like with Zeus's lightning bolts and using um, which is kind of weird because uh, it's obvious that Poseidon's you know, lightning attack was much more better. I mean, sure, you can be able to have a projectile-throwing weapon with Zeus's lightning bolts, but Poseidon's weapon was... It, I mean, Poseidon's ability for you to shoot lightning in a circle was much more easier to use. I use that one a lot. And then, of course, you have... Um, uh, let's see, there's Ar Artem Artemis's sword, which I used a little bit more than I even used my chain blades because of how powerful it was. And, uh, let's see, there was also... Um, Hades' attack in which he can be able to, like, grab soul, uh, grab the uh, enemies and, you know, kind of, like, steal their souls. The barba what about the Barbarian Hammer? Oh, yes, the Barbarian Hammer was also a good one. Also, um, if you were fighting off one of the Gorgons, you actually get to use the Gorgon head so you can freeze your enemies into stone. I like that. That carries on from the original Perseus myth, so that was a nice nod to, nice nod to the source material. And not to mention, there was also with J Jason and the Argonauts, in which in God of War Two he actually gets the Golden Fleece and he uses it to, as a defense weapon. Yeah, he got the. Didn't he get? He got the. Didn't he get a pair of wax wings from Daedalus too? Yes, he did. That was also uh, that was in the second game, in which he did get Daedalus's wings, and he's able to use it for flight. Yeah, he th thankfully he knew how to use them better than Icarus did. That is true, yes. Yeah, there, there were a lot of, uh, you know, they showcased a lot of the Greek um, characters in, you know, various of the God of War games. You had, uh, you had Poseidon, you have all you have all the gods, you had Prometheus, uh, Daedalus and Icarus, uh, and then later on throughout the series, you feature, they feature characters such as, like, Hercules and the Gorgon Sisters. Who didn't love that when they brought in Her Hercules, they got Kevin Sorbo? Oh, that was amazing! That was freaking awesome i love that one all right so um well while we're wrapping up let's name a few more uh games from the from you know from the playstation 2 that we uh finally remember okay i'll uh, just i'll just name one more okay um this last one i i already mentioned i mentioned i got it because of sly cooper but you've already done a uh you've already done an old school lane on that so i'll recommend everyone listen to that listen to that instead to get a good idea of what the sly cooper games have to offer and I'll just bring up my last memory with this a little bit. Am I the only one who played Katamari? Oh my god, Katamari Damashi, yes! I, I remember when I first saw that in college. I cannot tell you of how mesmerized I was when I first saw it. It looks so weird. Just, you know, we have the King of the Cosmos coming along. He sends the prince over to gather up every single item so they can rebuild the cosmos just because he screwed up and he's lazy, but he's the king. He can do whatever the hell he wants. I thought it was the weirdest thing ever, but when I played it, I was like, this is amazing! It's, it's, it's so insane, and yet it's so compelling because it gives you that challenge. Keep building. Get it as big as you can. Get as many different items as you can. See how far you can take this until you're eventually consuming entire planets. It's it's just so weird. You gather everything from buildings to people to bridges to corn husks. It's yeah. so weird, but it it just works so well. I mean, this was kind of like one of the first introductions of, you know, kind of like, hey, let's see how J Japanese the Americans can be able to take. Yeah, that's one thing I really, that's one thing I find considerably interesting. Um, the PlayStation 2 and the era it came out in, it 
you know, the sixth generation of consoles, you still had people who were trying to tell good stories, but I think this was the console generation when you really saw developers working to, you know, truly legitimize gaming as an art form by just experimenting and just seeing what it's just seeing what concepts they could come up with, whether they be, you know, unbelievably moving or just surreal and bizarre. Yeah, and also the soundtrack. The soundtrack is very upbeat, especially the opening theme. It's even to, still to this day is one of the most iconic in the PlayStation Two. Have any of you guys ever played the game? Um, what was it Katamari Damacy? Yeah. yeah. How, how about you, Ryan? Uh, I never played anything. Okay, fair enough. Um, you, any of you guys have any like you know games that you want to talk about? That you know any one game that kind of uh, comes uh, into your mind? Really briefly, does anybody remember a game called Primal? Mm. I don't know of it. I never it's, played it. It's pretty obscure. Who did you? Um, sorry, go ahead. Was that? Weren't you? Uh, weren't you able to like transform into different? Yeah, creatures? yeah, you can transform into like demons. Like oh. you were this chick, and you went to another dimension. It's a. It's pretty interesting. Hmm. I don't think a lot of people remember it. Yeah, I've never even heard of the game myself. Oh, you should look it up. Yeah, I'll definitely have to take a look into it. It's an oldie. Yeah, I remember that. Well, technically all PS2 games are oldies now. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we are talking about the 15th anniversary of the console, for goodness sake. That's how how old it is. Okay, there's two more that I want to bring up. And, of course, I I mean, there's one game, when I think of, it's the PlayStation 2, Kingdom Hearts. I mean, I remember when I first saw the commercial for Kingdom Hearts, I thought to myself, this is weird. Final Fantasy characters and Disney characters coming together? This will never work. But then when I played the first game, I was intrigued by it. it you know, the, the story was, you know, it, you know, starting off, it was pretty simple right before it just got too convoluted for its own good. But... Seeing the Disney characters and seeing, you know, the some of the Final Fantasy characters, more you know, particularly from Final Fantasy VIII, coming into this huge world, and you have you know Sora, Riku, and Kyrie, and defeating against the evil Maleficent, and you know with Riku and Kyrie disappearing, and you're trying to find them alongside with Donald and Goofy, and playing off against you know all the um, villains of Disney like Jafar and Ursula and Clayton. And, uh, and you know, going over to the various uh, levels of Disney levels, which, you know, that was amazing. And one of my favorites was going into Halloween Town from Nightmare Before Christmas, and you get to dress in the costumes to, you know, while, play- while This Is Halloween is playing in the background, which that was, oh, yeah. that was one of my favorite moments in the game. Oh, yeah. Definitely one of the best. Makes up for the, makes up for the horror of the musical scene under... In the un- in the underwater world. Oh. oh. <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. If any of you have seen the Let's Play channel PlayStation, uh, we did both Kingdom Hearts and I think we did Kingdom Hearts two for a bit right before we put on we got into a hiatus. But oh, I hate Atlantica. <laughs> It was the bane of my existence. But I gotta say that going into places such as Halloween Town and, you know, various places just made up for it because I wanted to get away from Atlantica as possible because of the horrible swimming mechanics and playing against Ursula was a pain. Ugh. But, you know, Kingdom Hearts 2, obviously, you know, without a doubt, is the best game, even in the entire series. They were able to take everything that was great about it and culminate it together with a whole bunch of new mechanics. There were new worlds to explore, and, uh, you know, for those who didn't play Chain of Memories, I'm sure it must have confused you, but still, it was really, really awesome. I remember distinctly borrowing that from Blockbuster, and... You know, just trying to go my way through to beating it as fast as I could right before I had to return it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to play, and the story was really interesting. It, it almost made it sound like it, would, it had a conclusion to it, but then they con- decided to continue on with it, and things just got complicated from there. Yeah, it's running into this problem that the later final that Final Fantasy has now, in that it just doesn't know when to end. 
Yeah, I mean, I really don't have a lot of things to say about it, but, I mean, you know, but still, I can, I mean, those games just really, really were great experiences for me, especially as a Disney fan myself. There were, there were a ton of fun to play. kind of reminded me of the days of playing in the Super Nintendo with Magical Quest and Sega Genesis with, like, the Castle of Illusion series. I have one more game to talk about, and, you know, obviously I want to save, like, the little cult classics for last. Um, Psychonauts. Ah, wonderful game. I loved it. It it was so great. I remember, I mean, you know, I'm not going to be, like, the hipster in which I got it when it first came out. No, I didn't. I, I got it, like, maybe about a few years after you know, it started gaining, gaining the praise. And then I heard about it and I was like, I want to check this out. And it was really quirky. It had a distinctive style of going into people's dreams. Raz is such a fun character. And, uh, you know, Richard Horvitz does an amazing job portraying as him. And, you know, the power-ups are unique and the story was interesting. Yes. The worlds were great. The characters were interesting. I mean, you know, Tim Schafer's style is really distinct when it comes to this game. It's really awesome. Yeah, it is just kind of a shame, though, that um, Schafer's recent work hasn't really been able to stand up to that. I mean, I played Broken Age, and I thought it would be a bit of a letdown. I'd really like to see him hit the, you know, hit it out of the park again with something on the level of Psychonauts. Yeah, a lot of people have said the same thing about it. I think we talked about it when the first came, when the game came out. I think we talked about it briefly about how. Uh, Broken Age was part of like a what was it like a fund uh, like a crowdfunding Kickstarter. yeah Kickstarter. Kickstarter it was a Kickstarter and I was talking about that you know with Kickstarting um, games you have to follow in a certain criteria of what you expect the um, the crowd would want kind of like falling into like the mainstream crowd with you know with with Schaefer's previous work it's always had that underground cult following with you know games such yeah. as like Grim Fandango and a lot of the LucasArts games in which he was involved with like Monkey Island so yeah. when seeing him going into like the mainstream stuff and having to follow in the criteria of what it's expected to be it's, you know I, I guess maybe he was kind of like put into a corner of maybe not being able to um, follow in yeah. what his usual style is. Yeah, or or like under. I think the big problem was he like underestimated the budget, and had to work with, you know, they had to try and cobble something together with lesser funds than he needed. Yeah, so, yeah I get I get the guy credit. He put in a good effort, but it still doesn't really compare because Psychonauts was just brimming with variety. You know, you had such you had all, you had powers like pyrokinesis and. You know, levitation and the ability to see through other people's minds to solve, to see through other people's eyes to solve puzzles. You had the memorable worlds like the Milkman conspiracy still stands out to me as one of the best levels in video gaming. It's it's interesting because I think the Milkman level is was Lindsay Briggs' favorite level when she was discussing about it in her Psychonauts review. Hello, fellow road crew worker. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the road crew. <laughs> Welcome to the road crew! <laughs> okay, 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 I'm, I'm done. Alright, um, I, I don't have really much to say. I'm sure that I'm missing, like, a bajillion games, but I think we pretty yeah. much said enough. Uh, at yeah. least I've said yeah. enough. How about yeah, the rest I of you? Mean, I was going to mention Silent Hill, but considering how people are still heartbroken over what Konami's done, maybe it's best not to open that wound again. Oh, um, yes. Curse you, Konami, and letting go Kojima and Del Toro for not releasing PT. You sons of bitches. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's just let's just conclude this. <laughs> All right. So, any of you guys have anything to plug or self promote? No. No. All right. All right. How about you? Know, this whole discussion is it's kind of. I realized how many games I missed out on. It's never too late to check them out. Yeah. Yeah. I, Get I should go buy myself another PlayStation 2 and, you know, yeah. try to revisit them. Yeah, see if you can find them cheap or see if they're available for download on the PlayStation Network. Oh, yeah. They, they're, they're, they're releasing a lot more of them ever since the PlayStation 4 came out, so there should be a lot more coming out pretty soon. Um, as for me, uh, um, 
I have a couple of more videos to release, and um, I got a couple of guests lined up for casual chats to round out the end of the year. Alright, uh, that is it for this episode of Casual Chats discussing about PlayStation 2 memories. Let me know in the comments below on some of your favorite games on the PlayStation 2, and what were your memories behind it. So, uh, guys, once again, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having us. Thanks. And uh, we hope to see you again on the next episode of Casual Chats, so take care.